Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. And children, if you have Bibles, you should be opening your Bibles right now and turning to Luke 14 through 30, and then what you do is you just set the Bible on your lap, and when I mention a verse, you look at that verse, and so um, get in the habit of that. All right, so Luke chapter 14, chapter 4, verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the district, the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he took and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came all over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So a little bit about the context of this passage. Let's remember that in the middle of chapter 3, so back one chapter, the father affirms his son. There's still a a ring. Can you um, pull down the top EQ and maybe the the gain a little bit? Um. You are my, the father affirms his son and says, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. At the end of chapter three, we're given the genealogy of Jesus, which further affirms Jesus as the son of God. Then chapter four begins with Jesus temptation in the desert where where Satan questions whether Jesus is the son of God. He says, if you are the son of God. 
And now in the passage we just read, Jesus returns to the region of Galilee and more specifically to his hometown, Nazareth. He goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. This is the city where Jesus grew up. It is the place where Jesus worked with Joseph in carpentry. It's where, so to speak, he first learned how to drive, right? And he went where he went to high school and where he had his first date, so to speak. Right? That's, that's where he's back. He's back where people would have remembered him as a little child. Things start off very well for Jesus. Verse 14 and 15 makes a few points about that. He is in the power of the Spirit. News about him is spreading all over. He is teaching in the synagogues of the region. And finally, and most importantly, notice what verse 15 says about the people's reaction to Jesus as a teaching. We learn that at this point, Jesus was praised by all. Praised by all. Things are going well. He's back in town. He's the hero. He's the hometown hero. He's the golden boy. He's the pride of Nazareth. There is legislation in the Nazareth town council to have signs that say childhood home of Jesus. Right? As you enter the city limits. And the praise by the people for Jesus, that is often how new situations begin. Don't they? Whenever someone new takes over the leadership of an organization, there's a happy, hopeful sort of exuberance at that point. The old guy's out, long live the new guy. Whether that position is a new president, a new chairman of a board, new college administrator, a new business owner, or perhaps even a new pastor of a church. There's a honeymoon period when all is well, all is hopeful, everything's positive, And usually those who ascend to those positions of leadership intend to ride that wave of goodwill as long as they possibly can. Now, do you know the difference between a politician and a statesman? Do you know the difference between a politician and a statesman? The politician will do all he can to ride that initial wave of goodwill. He will try to ride that wave as long as he can. He'll do whatever it takes. He will promise whatever he needs to promise. In order to keep the goodwill coming. He will glad hand whomever he needs to. He will completely completely bend to the felt needs of his constituents. He will bend whichever way he needs to bend in order to make the most people happy. He does all of that in order to extend the goodwill of his new leadership for as long as he can. The statesman, on the other hand, is more concerned to do what is right. Right? He realizes that felt needs do not always align with what is best or with what is right, certainly in the sight of God. He wants to establish fixed principles. Rather than taking a poll to decide his next move, he will be guided by fixed principles. And hopefully those principles are things that are found in the word of God. You would say, I imagine, that there are very few statesmen today. Very few statesmen You might also say, I imagine, in this touchy-feely, postmodern, slightly narcissistic, Facebook-y world, where feelings are all that matters and where everybody is taught to play the victim with their felt needs, uh, that there are very few people in general who don't live a life controlled by their feelings, or perhaps more precisely by their appetites. 
right? We live according to our appetites. There are very few leaders and very few followers that don't have as their controlling principle me and my appetites and to hell with your principles, right? Yet beyond this, if a leader at any point tries to establish doctrine, he likely will be rejected for not holding to particular principles, but for being mean, for being mean, right? To hold particular principles is not, you know, being truthful or being statesmanlike today. Today, it's just you're mean. That's postmodernism. That's where we live. That's the culture that we live in. You may have good arguments. You may even have God's word. You may have every bit of logic. You may have every bit of reason on your side. You may have a, a chorus of angels singing as you speak. But I don't like it and you're mean, is the response. And I'm going to make you shut up. That's the world in which we live. Ask the photographers out in Arizona if that's true or not. Ask the cake bakers in Washington if that's true or not. I mean, we can go through a lot. The, the pizza place in Indianapolis. The, you know, this, there's, so, there's a long list of these people who have been told to be tolerant. And then when they had principles, were then told to shut up. Now let me say also something as a prelude to what is coming in the rest of this chapter and the rest of the Gospel of Luke. This is one of the keys to understanding the Gospels and understanding Jesus' ministry, understanding even the ministry of the apostles and the work beyond that of the elders in the church. Those who are ruled by their appetites don't want warnings. Everybody who's ruled by their appetites do not want to be warned about those appetites. They don't want to be taught on them. They don't want to be warned away from them. Right? Those who are ruled by their appetites, their flesh, their lust, do not want to hear warnings. They only want affirmation. And here's the point. Jesus, though, spends almost all of his time giving people what? Warnings. Oh, there are affirmations. Without question, there are affirmations. But you would think today that Jesus only gives affirmations in Scripture, given what we hear from our pulpits, right? And in a very real way, that is the goal of all preaching, is it not? To give, yes, those affirmations, but also those warnings. To give warnings. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, telling us that the whole of the Old Testament and the events recorded there, quote, happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Right, so, I mean, he refers to the Old Testament example as examples for us so that we might not crave evil things. And elsewhere, the Apostle Paul tells us that there will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Right? Has that day, is that today? Is that today? Do people want to accumulate people who just affirm them constantly? Is that the church today? You know, give me, give me what I need and if you don't, then... I'm going to go to the PCA church up the road. And of course, 
all of this, you know, the, the, um, this must be done with love. Isn't that the qualification that I have to mention right now, right? has to be. I can't just mention warnings and then not in the next breath say something about, oh, it's got to be done in love, you know. Um, but far too often, pastors and leaders don't reprove. They don't reprove, thinking somehow that not reproving is love. Not warning somebody from danger is somehow love, right? When, when that's just, really, it's neglect. It's neglect. We would not call a father who neglects his children a loving father. In, uh, in a postmodern and subjective love-yourself-at-all-costs world, any correction, any warning, any non-affirmation is seen as a lack of love. It doesn't matter how gentle the warning may be spoken, it still will not be received well most of the time today. I mean, if you, if you say some subtle, some subtle thing about the color of somebody's lapel pen, you know, that they'll think you're an enemy. We've all experienced this. When, when, when you have spoken to a cousin or an uncle or somebody else with an alternative lifestyle, or perhaps more often when you are corrected by your wife, your husband, your boss, your elders, your pastors, don't you flare up in pride, right? Don't you think, well, why... I, I understand what he's saying and, and how I need to get better, but he's so mean, right? Why doesn't he love me? Why doesn't he love me? Why can't he tell me these things positively? So we're all like this. Um, and we come to this passage and it sort of teaches us about those feelings, right? Now, Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the very word of God. It does not do justice to say that he spoke the truth. He is truth, right? Remember, God the Father had just spoken from heaven, announcing that Jesus was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. What better endorsement, you know, could Jesus receive than a public service announcement from God in heaven, his father? And initially, the people are praising Jesus. Jesus is home. Jesus is good. Jesus is my man. Right? Then Jesus enters the synagogue one Saturday. And as was his custom, interesting, Jesus worshipped in the, in the synagogues. That's, that was his custom. And as was the custom of the synagogue during those times, I think any man could stand up and teach if he was chosen to teach. And so you'd be handed the scroll and you would, you would open the scroll, uh, a portion of one of the, the Old Testament books, you would open it up and that man would stand and read and teach. Jesus was the man that Sunday, Saturday, sorry. He receives the scroll upon which is written the book of Isaiah, a book, Remember, written 700 years earlier, but filled with prophecies about this moment, about Jesus, the servant of the Lord. And Jesus cherry picks his reading, right? He picks, he picks the perfect one. He takes a few verses from Isaiah 61.1, and the first part, and that's important, only the first part of verse 2. 
And with those verses, he's making a statement. Today, your salvation is here. Salvation has come to you. It's here. It's a gloriously positive message, right? What is interesting, too, is where Jesus stops in his reading. Isaiah 6, 61, verse 2 goes on to say, To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves that point off. He doesn't speak about the day of vengeance of our God. He just speaks about the, the favorable year of the Lord. So he's being very positive, right? He's, he's cherry-picking his verses. And he's being very positive. He keeps it positive. He stops in the middle of that verse. Now Jesus rolls up the scroll. He sits down. And everybody in the place is looking at him. You know, question, questioningly looking at him. No doubt he read with authority, right? And so here's the... Here's the word of God reading the inscripturated word of God. And he spoke with authority. And look at verse 21. Not content to keep things safe and obscure and in the abstract, he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. To have been there, to have been listening to Jesus say that. He reads the word and everything's still abstract. But then he says, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's telling them, I am the servant of the Lord. As Isaiah talked about, I am the Messiah. I am the one who has been sent. And how do the people respond? How do the people respond? Well, I think this is the turning point. They are still speaking well of him. It says in verse 22, and they are still seemingly willing to consider the gracious words, you know, like ripe grapes that are falling from his lips. Then they say, it's not this Joseph's son. Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, isn't this the guy who last week was fixing my roof with his dad? Or several years ago. Now they know very well who this 30-year-old man is. They are not asking the question because they lack information. They are not asking the question because somehow Jesus is still obscure. They know the scriptures he has just spoken about. They grew up in the church, in the synagogue after all. They went through confirmation classes when they were young. Perhaps this will help you understand their question. Let me... You know, let me put it this way. Is this not Joseph's son? Bless his heart. Right? That's the attitude of this question. Is this not Joseph's son? Bless his heart. In other words, they've heard his gracious words. They've perhaps heard a great many things about him. They've heard rumors of a voice from heaven. They've, they've They've heard the scriptures and what... He just said about them. And now they say, oh, man, but it's it's just it's just Joseph's son. It's just Joseph's son. This question they ask, is this not Joseph's son is a soft, passive, cute, safe, but still blatant rejection of Jesus. They want a plausible excuse for rejecting what he has just said. And their excuse is, well. 
Joseph's son? Again, think of the context. God said, this is my beloved son. Satan said, if you are the son of God. And now Jesus' hometown folks say, is this not Joseph's son? Right? God affirms Jesus' sonship. Satan questions it. And then the, the, the hometown folks bring it down to earth. Right? This is just Joseph's son. Even after he has said, I am the one who will release you from captivity. Today, I'm that one. I'm here to release you from captivity. This is not Joseph's son. And now Jesus, wanting to protect his reputation, wanting to ride that wave of goodwill like a good politician, says, oh, my friends, you know, let me say it again. Today, perhaps the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing if you want it to be. You know, backs off a little bit, doesn't get too gnarly. No, look at what he says in verse 23. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Uh, He's hot at this point. These are not happy words, right? Now we understand, the folks of Nazareth, are mad at Jesus because he had not done the miracles in her that had been done in other places. The proverb, the proverb, physician heal thyself, basically means the doctor should start with himself and those closest to him. But Jesus hadn't done that, right? And, and Jesus knows it. Do you think Jesus knew this before he started preaching the good news to them? Yes. Do you think he discerned their hearts before he went to Isaiah 61. Yes. Do you think he should have quieted his discernment. And not factored in their discontentment. About what he would say. Well. No. We are postmodern victims. We think Jesus should have been gracious. By not bringing up the fact that everybody was mad. That he had done great things. In Capernaum. But he hadn't done it here. In Nazareth. In his hometown. Instead of giving his estate, you know, so to speak, to the Spartanburg Public Libraries. He gave his estate to the, to the, to, to the Library of Congress way off in Washington, D.C. What a rascal. So our perception is that Jesus ceased preaching the gospel, isn't it? Verses 16 to 21 are gospel. They're powerful. They're positive. They're nurturing. They're affirming. Right, But verses 22 to 27, when he is warning Nazareth not to reject what they have heard from the lips of the Son of God, well, that is harsh, it's unkind, it's unfeeling, it's prideful. Well, what did Jesus, the Word of God, say? Verse 24, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Verse 25 to 26, there were many widows in Israel during the drought that Elijah prayed for, and yet God sent him only to one Gentile. There were many lepers in Israel during Elijah's time, Elisha's time, but only Naaman, a Gentile, was healed. In other words, Jesus is saying, let me explain to you why I've not done any healing here. Because you think of me merely as the son of Joseph. You think of me merely as the son of Joseph. In Matthew chapter 13, we we learn this. Jesus did not do many miracles in his hometown because of, as the passage says, their what? Their unbelief, 
right? They have heard the preaching of the word first, that Jesus is the Savior, and second, that they've, they've been given an explanation about why Jesus, that Savior, didn't do any miracles in their midst. All the preaching of the word, what should their response have been to Jesus? It should have been repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, but they stayed in their unbelief. What was their unbelief? It wasn't just unbelief. Their response is unbelief and murderous rage. I mean, look at verses 28 and 29. And all the people in the synagogue after Jesus says, I mean, after Jesus says, look, there were tons of lepers and God only healed one of them. I mean, it's quite a statement, right? There was only one that was willed to be, and it was a Gentile, right? He's speaking to the Jews. God only saved one Gentile. And so on the the heels of this, and all the people in the synagogue, verse 28, were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. It's hometown, hometown hero, right? It is often said that you know you've hit your mark when you provoke a strong reaction. Well, Jesus must have missed, missed, he must have hit his mark right on the bullseye. Of their reaction, John Calvin writes, Thus ungodly men not only resist with obstinacy the judgments of God, but rise into cruelty against his servants. So what is your response to the Word of God? What is your response to the Word of God? When you are reading the Word, if you read the Word, when you are reading God's Word and you get to a point where it rubs you the wrong way, what's your response? I've found that when I am most faithful, the wounds of Scripture are my best friends, right? When I'm most faithful. I've also found that when I'm most hard-hearted, the wounds of Scripture are my most hated enemies. When I'm depressed and Scripture tells me to to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. In other words, when I am discontent with my sin, unlike these homies of Nazareth, the warnings of Scripture are precious. Right? On the other hand, when I am satisfied with my sin, the warnings of Scripture are disgusting and to be silenced and to be removed from the memory and not opened. You know certain Scriptures when you're in sin that you can't go read, right? that you will avoid because you know it would bring you conviction and you'd rather just stay in your sin. I know I'm right when Scripture wounds me. I know I'm wrong when I will not allow Scripture to wound me. There are glorious affirmations in Scripture and from Jesus' mouth, enough to fill the most depressed heart with unmovable assurance. But the greatest assurance of our faith comes when the warnings of Scripture move us to repentance. When the warnings move us. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you have a poverty of spirit? That is willing to recognize that you are sinful and you need his help and you need to repent and you need to grow in holiness. Do you have that poverty of spirit? Those who seek 
for a Bible, do you want a Bible that only affirms you? A Jesus that only affirms you, a God that only affirms you, do not, uh, you, if you seek those things, then you do not know the sweetness of repentance, right? The goodness, the fatherly goodness of God's no, right? Of Him saying no to us. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. What is your response to the warnings of Scripture and not wanting to be abstract? What is your response to when I preach God's Word? What is your response when I ask questions like this from the pulpit? Are you figuring out ways to dismiss what I've preached? Trust me, I've sat under the preaching of the Word. I know what it's like. I know the sort of games I play in my head. I know I'd rather apply exhortations to other people in the sanctuary rather than first to myself. Right? And... And that's wrong. What is your response to the warnings of Scripture and, not, and, and, and the preaching of God's Word? What should have been the response of the people of Nazareth when Jesus taught them that their unbelief was leading them to reject their Savior? They should have wept. right? They should have tore their robes and threw dust on their heads and wept because Jesus was in their midst. He was preaching directly by a human mouth to them. And they were rejecting him, rejecting him, not just like, ah, you know, they took him to the edge of a cliff and wanted to throw him over the cliff and see his body broken and his head crushed. They wanted him to die. They hated what he was saying so much, they wanted him to die at that moment. But they should have wept and tore their robes and kissed his feet and bowed down before him. They should have fallen and shouted out for mercy. They should have said, yes, yes, forgive us. What you are saying is true. They should have, like Peter, who was told that he would deny the Lord, then denied the Lord. They should have wept bitterly, as Peter did when he recognized his sin. How did they respond? Murderous rage. What is your response to gospel warnings? Does your pride make you into a monster when you get rebuked by the word of God? To the things that Jesus said that are never mentioned in many of the pulpits of the church in America. To the exhortations laid out to you in scripture. That is, after all, the purpose of scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That assumes growth, right? That assumes that you're at point A, and the Scriptures are going to cut you up and prune you so that you get to point B. That's what that Scripture means, so that we will be equipped for even more good works. Jesus gave Nazareth the word of God, but they wanted his pretty, shiny, happy, slickly packaged, warm, fuzzy, positive, affirming miracles. The miracles are always sweet, right? You know, someone's limping around and then they get up and they can walk. 
somebody's dead and then they're alive. Somebody's, those miracles are, are just sweet affirmations. But then Jesus speaks and the people want to throw him off the cliff. The word of God comes and, and the conscience, not the body, is affected. So will you yield to God's word? You've got to pay attention to it, first of all. Will you yield to God's word? Will you allow Jesus to be the kind of good friend that is described in Proverbs? Better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. The scriptures are your friend because they're going to wound you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. God, let us not be like the people of Nazareth that determined that when Jesus spoke, they wanted to silence his voice. I pray that the more we hear Jesus speak through your word, the more we would want to hear. Lord, give us humble hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.